Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Jared Zimmer, the director of the Word on Fire Institute, and I'm your host for this episode. And as always, it's good to be with you again, Bishop Barrett. Hey, Jared. Always great to be with you. How you doing? Doing really well. Doing well. Just uh, dealing with that Texas heat right here in the beginning of the summer. But uh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's pretty hot in Texas <laughs> during this time. Here. Where I am here in Santa Barbara, it's the great thing. It's, it's like always mild, you know, even the height of the summer, it's maybe gets to 75 and, you know cool at night. So it's not like Phoenix or Texas, you know? Yeah. Well, I know you just had kind of a, a long run of, of meetings yeah. and confirmations and, and lots of traveling. And so I, I hope that you're kind of getting some rest now. Yeah, a little bit. Spring and, and early summer is a super busy time because in LA, we do all the confirmations after Easter. So it's like a, a very intense two month period where that's kind of all I'm doing. And then everything else in between confirmations. Then we had all these uh, meetings I went to the East Coast twice, you know, one for the Dominican ordination and then back again for the USCCB meeting. Um, so that's over. I'm in a period now. It's a little bit of a, you know, take a deep breath and doing more reading, writing, that kind of thing. Uh, we're getting ready for the Pivotal Players trip, which is the end of July. So that's the last of those trips. So it's a little bit of a respite right now. Good, good. I'm glad to hear you getting on just a little bit of rest between everything. <laughs> um, well, this week, I, I thought that, um, you know, today, actually, we're releasing in, within the Word on Fire Institute, um, a course by our good friend, Dr. Christopher Kazor. Um, and the title of the course is Myths of the Catholic Church. So it's kind of debunking a lot of the, especially modern myths that people tend to believe about the Catholic Church, especially in popular culture. Um, and I thought for this episode, um, it, it's not every myth that he goes through, but several of the myths that we continue to hear uh, in in culture on TV or podcasts or whatnot um, that continue to pop up and just kind of give you an opportunity to respond uh, to those myths. So the first one um, is that Catholics are stuck in the past and, and need to modernize. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It's gosh, it's like a buzzword, isn't it? It's a, all my life has been true. Uh, modern, modernize. What's so great about the modern? See, that's my question. The, the question should always be not, is it modern or ancient? But is it right or wrong? <laughs> you know, is it good or bad? See, a lot of that, Jared's born of scientism because um, the sciences do indeed move that way, that the more up-to-date you are, the better the science. So no serious uh, cosmologist is looking back to you know Aristotle or Ptolemy to figure out how the planets are arranged, right? We've made progress. I mean, no, no biologist is going to be reading carefully Aristotle's studies of animals. I, I mean, science has moved forward. And so what's most modern is indeed what's best. The problem is that doesn't apply to other areas of human endeavor. Would you say, for example, poetry written in the last 10 years is necessarily better than Dante or than Homer or than Shakespeare? Well, I mean, and your laugh answers the question. Well, I mean, of course not, because <laughs> yeah. poetry doesn't move that way. Like that, we say the modern is necessarily better. Would you say that um, I'll get in trouble? But would you say necessarily the L.A. Cathedral is greater than the Chartres Cathedral because the L.A. Cathedral was built twenty years ago? I mean, it, it doesn't work that way in other areas of human endeavor. Would you say? by the same token, that clearly the philosophy of Wittgenstein is greater than the philosophy of Kant because Wittgenstein is more up to date. I mean, modernizing. What's so great about modernity? 
Modernity, strictly speaking, names a, a certain period. It names a, a style and mode of thinking that came up out of people like Descartes and, and Kant and, and others. I call it the Enlightenment style of thinking. The church ought to get in line with the Enlightenment. Well, who says? <laughs> are there good things in the Enlightenment? Sure. And, and are there elements of it that we should pay attention to? Of course. But I, I resist the... Um, this sort of easy mythologizing of the modern as though that's so great. I love the fact that the Catholic church is grounded so deeply in the middle ages. It's so grounded in, in the classical world. Uh, that's a beautiful thing for me. So I would just change the subject. Don't talk about modern versus ancient. Talk about good versus bad or, or true versus false. Yeah. And one thing that I've always found is a, a very balanced view is your, your teaching from, that you get from, from Newman in regard to kind of the development of doctrine, that that's not the same thing as modernizing. It's not, you know, giving into modernity. No, that's Newman's idea that uh, doctrine is a living thing because doctrine doesn't exist, as he said, on, on the printed page. Like it's a static set of, of symbols. Doctrine is a living thing because it exists in, in living minds. And so uh, as minds mull over and think about and question and toss back and forth ideas. Those ideas unfold, they develop, they catch the light in new ways. Um, so yeah, that's always a, that's a good thing. And, uh, and to be fair, Newman knew there's a um, tendency therefore for corruption be precisely because ideas develop, they can also be corrupt. And so we need a, an authority to make that discrimination. So that's avoiding a sort of um, idolatry of the modern. You know, he certainly wouldn't subscribe to that. But it's acknowledging, sure, the, the fact of development. And it does seem to me that oftentimes when this myth is thrown out there is that they're specifically talking about uh, morality most often. They, they want us to modernize. And it does seem that um, the, the church holds strong uh, you know, to, to our moral norms because, as you said, those are outside of this kind of scientific progress. Um, it's a higher purpose. Go back to modernity for a second. I mean, and I'll, I'll take uh, liberalism as roughly equivalent here uh, to to modernity. Uh, the two great moral values, you might say, that come up out of the modern thing are freedom and equality. Good things? Yeah, you bet they are. And, and thank God we have a lot of political arrangements now that are predicated much more on these two great values. I don't, I'm not interested in, in going back to the you know, divine right of kings or these oppressive old forms of the ancien regime. I have no interest in that. I'm glad I celebrate freedom and equality. I think, I think Brandon and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but the trouble is now exaggerate those two things and you get a lot of the shadow side of modernity. Freedom run amok is our, is our time now. I, I, I invent, you know, I invent uh, who I am. I invent the truth. <laughs> Same thing with equality. You know, I mean, who are you to tell me what to think? I'm all views are equally valid. Well, that's, that's equality run amok. So it's a good example. The church would look at modernity and say, yeah, good. As a good example is Vatican II, John Paul II. Both affirm these great values within the modern political arrangement, even as they draw back from, from problems. Uh, and that's the way the church should do it. It moves, I'll do Newman again here, uh, the way an animal moves through its environment, both assimilating and resisting, right? So think of an animal that can't assimilate anything in its environment. That animal is dead in short order, right? Because that's what eating and drinking are and breathing are assimilating your environment. But also, by the same token, think of an animal that, that can't resist anything in its environment. That's also called a dead animal, right? You can't resist 
what's attacking you and what's threatening you and, and poisons and, and predators. You're a dead animal. So the point is a living animal moves deftly, both assimilating and resisting. So the church, which is a living thing, moves through every culture it finds itself in, both assimilating and resisting. Um, that's par for the course. Yeah. I've always loved also uh, Edmund Burke as he's seeing kind of France implode. He's, he's making a great difference between liberty and license. So he's, he's praising this libertine movement, but only so far, right? And I think the church holds in that way. And I agree, too, with a lot of commentators that will make a distinction between the, the French uh, Revolution and the American Revolution or the French instantiation of liberalism and the American one. The American being, and I, I say it as a proud American, being much healthier. It didn't have that fiercely Jacobin, uh, anti-clerical, um, libertine sort of quality. I mentioned, uh, was it last week with you, Jared, that I'm, I'm listening to A Tale of Two Cities. And, and Dickens is so good at showing, okay, I get where this came from, this revolution. I get the oppression that was going on and the way you know poor people were mistreated and all that. But then he also sees, as Edmund Burke did, there, there were similar figures there. The, the excesses of it and, and the, the, the horror, the, the, the terror, right? The terror from the revolution. So, but what, what's the church's view? Well, the church is assimilating what it can, resisting what it must as it moves through these various cultural forms. Well, uh, the second myth that I want to jump into uh, is that Catholics don't think for themselves. You know, the idea of kind of a blind faith or a blind obedience to hierarchy. Uh, what would you say to that? Oh, you know, I'd go back to uh, Hans-Georg Gadamer, the great German uh, philosopher. I, I had the privilege of hearing him when I, when I was a student at Catholic U many years ago. He was old. He lived to be 100 and some, 102, I think. But Gadamer came and, and spoke. But, you know, Gadamer's a great contribution. Look at his book called Wahrheit und Methode, right? Truth and Method. It was a response to the Enlightenment. He felt that the Enlightenment um, ran amok in the measure that it wanted to get rid of all prejudice. Like we just get rid of anything in the received tradition. There's nothing presupposed. You start from scratch, kind of the Cartesian thing, right? Start with the cogito and go from there. Gadamer argued, to my mind, utterly persuasively, that <laughs> that's a fantasy. That's a myth. Talk about a myth. Because it's impossible ever to move in, in that way. We all have, ipso facto, just un, unavoidably, we all have uh, prejudice. He called it fault will tie, prejudgment. Of course we do. Of course we do. Boy, that guy thinks for himself. Well, nobody thinks for utterly for himself. You see what I'm saying? The very fact that you and I are using the English language right now means we're not thinking for ourselves. We were given a, a form massively influential of the English language that is shaping our capacity to speak. The way we were trained and formed and educated means that we have a, a, a form and a structure to our dialogue. My point here, and this is, I'm just echoing Gadamer, is there's something almost weirdly exaggerated about this freedom of thought and I think for myself. We're all already massively influenced by all kinds of cultural forms. Now, does that mean there's no progress? No, no, no. I mean, on the basis of all of this, you can, great figures, find their way toward new uh, ideas and so on. But it, it, it's simply, a, it's simply a, a prejudice to think that somehow that's uniquely Catholic. <laughs> Only we Catholics have this, hung, we're hung up on the past. 
anyone involved in, in coherent conversation already has all sorts of prejudices and a relation to authority in place. Again, doesn't mean you can never turn on the authority or you can never question your prejudices. Of course you can. But it's it's not a simple either or. Yeah. I've always loved the way he, he's presented that Gadamer presented kind of a the great conversation that it's this kind of dialectic through history that we're taking part in, and that there's a certain strain of that tradition that has the authority to say things certainly, especially whenever it comes to morals and um, revelation. Yeah, I mean, and he would uh, he'd see it in a purely philosophical framework, but that a certain consensus emerges in the course of that conversation that provides a normative framework. Um, and, you know, there's something analogous, I'd say, within the church, is within the great conversation of the church's life, disciplined by a, a divinely sanctioned authority, a certain normative framework emerges. One name for that, by the way, is the creed. And so when we recite the creed, now it's a good example, actually, stay with that, because we all recite the creed, the Nicene Creed, that we all uh, adhere to. Does that mean, oh, theology is now over? No more need for theology. Oh, I got, we got it. There it is, the creed. No, no. The creed is like like the, the signposts on the road. You know, it's like saying, no, no, don't don't go. No, no, you can't go past that. Oh, no, no, you're going to go off the cliff that way. It doesn't mean you're not going to keep moving forward and, and, that the, and that the conversation won't continue. Now think of Newman. You know, the, of course, the, the development of doctrine continues, but it's, of course, disciplined by uh, a normative authority. Yeah. And I can say too, as just as a, a lay person, there's a certain freedom in being kind of, for lack of a better term, like kind of gifted this, those, those signposts um, that you, you know what your moral rights and wrongs are. You know how you ought to be living. So it doesn't leave you up to this kind of just, well, whatever I feel like it's, it's a very clear, concrete understanding of, you know, and there's kind of play within that, of course, but then, you know, there's a clear road. And there's, don't you love that in Gadamer, it reminds me of Chesterton, uh, where he compares it to a type of play. That when you're, you're playing tennis with someone, see, is a good example. It's like a conversation because tennis has rules that are, are pretty clear. It's got lines, right? And it's got the net and the ball and the racket. But have you ever seen one tennis match exactly like another? No, each one is different. Each, depending on, if, when I was a kid, it was like, you know, Borg and, and, uh, and um, McEnroe and those people. Uh, now you look at, uh, at um, you know, Roger Federer and uh, different styles of play, but every game is different. Well, that's, the, that's the, the, the conversation within certain normative frameworks is freed up by those frameworks. That's the, that's the, um, that's the paradox. If you said to two, play, two great players, hey, just, just go, out, <laughs> go out on that big parking lot and just knock the ball around, what's going to happen? It'll be as, the, as dull as dishwater, right? But now give them lines and net and rules and people watching and a judge in place. What's going to unfold? A great match, a really exciting, creative, fun to watch match. Theology's like that. The theological conversation is like that. The trouble with like just massive freedom, get rid of authority, get rid of norms, get rid of tradition. Now just go out there and talk. We'll be bored in five minutes, right? So that Gadamer there too, I think is very helpful. Yeah. Well, the next one would be um, that Catholics are homophobic. Um, you know, kind of this, because we state that we won't accept so, so-called same-sex marriage, um, therefore we must in fact hate gay people. Well, how would you respond to that? 
we're, we're using sports analogies. I'll continue with one. Uh, and you're a football player. So, so the, the game, the play is, has unfolded. Something has now so violated the rules that the game can't really go on coherently. So what does the referee do? Football, he throws a flag, right? Which means, all right, all right, plays over. What was just done there is, is not congruent with the nature of football. So we got to start over again. I would hope that whenever someone uses that little word, phobe, <laughs> in these contexts, a flag should be thrown, that, that a penalty has occurred. And here's what I mean. Let's say you're, two people are talking about the issue of homosexuality as a moral issue. And each one is, is using arguments, one in, in favor of it as something morally praiseworthy or, or permissible, another saying morally unacceptable. Fine. A conversation is going on about the truth of the matter morally. But then one of the conversation partners says, oh, you know what? You're a homophobe. Is, is what's going on here really is you just are afraid of, you know, or you have a phobia about gay people. Is At that point, I throw the flag and say, no, 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 no. We have to start over again because you've just shifted from an epistemic framework to a psychological framework. And to use classical um, language, you've now committed the ad hominem offense. So instead of engaging the argument, you're now attacking the person. So you've got this hang up. You're afraid of gay people. That gets us precisely nowhere, it seems to me. Throw the flag. Okay, let's regroup. Let's try as best we can to return to argument. You know, see what happens, Jared, when, when people are finding um, their own argument less than persuasive, they often make this move, right? Yeah. So you must have a problem. That's why you're not accepting my argument. No, I don't find your argument very convincing. And I'll tell you why. That's a healthier dialogue. Now, see, I'm, I'm trying to be careful not to say, you know, so if someone is defending the legitimacy of homosexuality, okay, but let's stay at that level. Let's stay at that level of conversation. Don't don't call someone a homophobe. That's going to get us nowhere. The next one would be that Catholic history is rife with violence and corruption. Um, in fact, it was so bad that only something like the Protestant Reformation could fix it. Uh, what would be your response there? What would be your response there? <laughs> well, I say, well, like, duh. I mean, what part of human history is not rife with corruption and violence? Name one moment in our history as human beings that's not rife with corruption and violence. Name one institution. That's not rife with corruption and violence. Uh, it's called a human condition. It's called the effects of original sin. Uh, I, I don't know. When, when was this magical time when there was, there was no uh, uh, corruption and violence? So that doesn't surprise me at all. You know, Then take something as old and, and widespread as the Catholic Church. It's all over the world and 2,000 years old. Finding corruption and violence in it, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, of course you're going to find corruption and violence. But my question is, what does that prove? What do you think that proves? Um, that human beings are a bad lot. Yeah, okay. Our, our doctrine uh, predisposes us to think that. <laughs> uh, original sin. We're a bad lot. Of course we go bad. Um, I'm an American. I'm a proud American. Um, lots of corruption and violence in American history. I mean, you tell me. Uh, so what? What does that prove? Does that prove that American ideals are, are bad? That prove the Declaration of Independence should be ripped up? That proves that Jefferson and Franklin and Madison and Washington were terrible people? No, I mean, come on. I, I'm, I'm for the great ideals of America, even as I acknowledge tremendous corruption and violence within the American framework. Same with my Catholicism. Uh, so, you know, 
name your whatever your outrage is, you know. So what what do you conclude? That we tear up the gospels, that we we forget about Jesus, that we throw the sacraments out, that we we ignore the saints, you know. Um and then I mean, I'm sorry, I say it with all due respect and apologies to my Protestant friends, but the Protestant Reformation solved the problem of corruption and violence. I mean, hello, take out any history book, you know, as if the Protestantism ushered in a golden age of, of sweetness and light. I mean, give me a break. Uh, we human beings are a bad lot. We always have been from the fall on. We will be until the eschaton. And so that proves to me next to nothing. You know, it's it's just such an, a facile move. I hear it all the time on my on the Internet site, you know, about, oh, the Catholic Church has been behind all these awful things. Uh, come on. Come on. Yeah. Name one institution. Yeah. Well, I think it speaks also to this sort of um, enlightenment thinking of progress is always better and that that progress sometimes needs to be violent. Um, but I, I love what you've always said is that this in these instances, this is the breakthrough of grace, that the, the paradox that Christ comes in as the nonviolent and then kind of takes it on. Um, and we see that in the great reformers, right? They show up as as Christ figures within those moments. And rather than breaking away violently, they actually enter into it nonviolently. Yeah, that's right. And that's the move of, of the great saints in every era. And that's the interesting thing is as you walk through like Catholic history and, and you'll notice all these different outrages and so on. But at the same time, look for the saints. Where were the saints at that time? And they're always there. There are always saints around. You know, go back to, to Augustine's City of God, where he compares the church to Noah's Ark. And he means on this huge ocean, this roiled ocean of human history, there's this little tiny, you know, ship that's making its way. And Augustine, you know, who was no fool, obviously, never simply identified the city of God with the institutional church. He knew that that corruption runs sometimes right through the institutional church. What he meant was there's this there's this remnant, there's this there's this core of of people living in grace. And and they're always like a little ship going along this this royal sea. Okay. Okay. I, I guess it will be that way till the eschaton. We'll we'll see. But um, I don't think that proves much of anything, that there's been all sorts of moral. I've always loved how Fulton Sheen kind of builds on Augustine and talks about the the very real reality of having a bunch of animals in a small boat. Eventually, it's going to start stinking and it's going to need to be cleaned out. And you need Noah to show up with a shovel and clean it out. You know? Yep. And you know where he got that from? He got that from Origen. Uh, and Augustine was deeply indebted to Origen. But he has a beautiful reflection on Noah's Ark and does all of that. I and mean, he loved to read things allegorically. But that there was, in fact, Origen says, some part of the boat where they kept all the waste. And uh, his point there was, well, there's the church. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's carrying saints and sinners, and it's carrying beauty and uh, and uh, gunk with it, you know, through the centuries. And and so so it goes. Well, for the last myth, um, I, I wanted to touch on that this the sexual abuse is because of celibacy. Um, I know you've spoken about that a few times, but maybe just touch on that a little bit. Oh, it's demonstrably false. I go back to my old uh, Chicago colleague, Andrew Greeley, you know, who did sociological surveys much of his, of his life. And uh, Greeley said, I mean, over and over again, it's proven that there's, there's not even a correlation between the two. And then look at the clear, overwhelming evidence of, of people who perpetrate uh, the sexual abuse of children are overwhelmingly not celibate males. Most sex abuse still takes place within families. Now begin to look at, you know, 
the Boy Scouts. Didn't we just see a, something like 12,000 cases uh, in their initial reporting have come forward? Uh, the public schools. Don't get me started on the public schools. If you want to see overwhelming numbers of cases, my point there is not to blame or exonerate. It's simply to say it's simplistic in the extreme to think that this is somehow a uniquely Catholic problem or that it's correlated to priestly celibacy. Um, I would correlate it to um, sociopathic and narcissistic behavior. I think that's where it comes from. Whether that's a father or a family, whether it's a Catholic priest, whether it's a Boy Scout leader, whether it's a sixth grade uh, English teacher, I'd look for narcissists and sociopaths are the ones who give rise to this uh, terrible abuse. It's way too facile. And, and largely informed by a, by a knee-jerk anti-Catholicism to say, oh, there it is, celibate priest. That's why we got this problem. That's simply demonstrably uh, false. And see, it doesn't get us anywhere. It, it, as long as we follow all these old um, facile explanations, we're not going to get anywhere near solving the problem. Find sociopaths and narcissists. Look for them. They're the ones who give rise to this. And for any of our listeners who haven't had a chance yet to pick up uh, Bishop Barron's book, uh, be sure to visit wordonfireshow.com slash letter, uh, his latest book, Letter to a Suffering Church, where he actually touches on uh, this subject and goes much deeper into the, the terrible issue of this sex abuse crisis. Um, well, now it's time for a question from our listener, um, and this listener asks a question about blessings. Hello, Your Excellency. I've been following you for years. I pray for you a lot. Uh, and I have a question that I, I don't know why I don't know the answer to yet, but what are blessings really, like ontologically or theologically speaking. I mean, you ask for a blessing and you like to have them, but what are they specifically? What does it mean to have an item blessed? Thank you. Yeah, good. Thank you for that. I'll, I'll, I'll start. We only have time for that last observation. When you bless an item or you bless a, an object or you bless a building. So Thomas Aquinas says that to bless is to set something aside for a sacred purpose. So when I bless a rosary, so often when I go out to a parish, people will come up to me and ask for things to be blessed. It's a, a necklace or a cross or a rosary. Or I'll go as, as a bishop and bless an altar or bless a church building. I'm in a formal ritualized way setting that object or place or building aside for a sacred purpose. And therefore, there is something ontological about it, for want of a better term. There's something that, if you want, inheres in an object or place so designated and set aside. It's a, you know, that's that old idea of, of the sacred is what's um, separated. You know, like the sanctuary. In the old days, we had the, you know, the communion rail and all that. But the idea, or now it's elevated. There's something that sets it aside. That's a sacred or blessed place. Um, not long ago, I blessed the chalice of one of the guys that will be ordained a priest for L.A. I, I'm setting it aside formally and ritually for a sacred purpose. Is that something ontologically real? Yeah, sure is. Sure is. Which is why we treat blessed objects with a special reverence. Um, I, I remember my mother, I was a little tiny kid, 
uh, gave me this. It was a cross that my uncle had. It was a Christian brother. And uh, I still have it. It's down in my room in L.A. And uh, I dropped it at one point. My mother, oh, oh, now you have to kiss the cross. And, you know, to because it's a blessed object and you want to show respect for it. That's dead right, it seems to me. You know, if this thing has been set aside for a sacred purpose. Well, I have that cross this day down in my house. I, I still see it as a as a sacred object. So that's what blessing means in a you know, quick explanation. All right. Well, that does it for us today. Um, and as the director of the Word on Fire Institute, I do want to invite all of our listeners and viewers um, to check out the Word on Fire Institute. As we mentioned earlier in this episode, that today we're actually releasing the first lesson of uh, the kind of topic we talked about today from Dr. Christopher Kazor about the myths of the Catholic Church. And so if you'd like to dive a little bit deeper into um, this topic and kind of better understand how it is that as evangelists we can speak to many of these myths that we hear in the culture, be sure to visit Word on fire.institute and um, you can sign up today and with your subscription you also get a free subscription to word on fire digital uh, that includes all of the feature presentations the topical studies that we've got everything involved that uh, bishop Barron has filmed over the years you get free access to it as a member of the institute so again that's word on fire.institute uh, well thank you all for listening and we'll see you here next week on the word on fire show 